2: Hello, kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we reran an entire episode, from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, The 12th episode of Risk that was ever heard from March of 2010. Here is Obsessions. We were at a party, everyone was having a wonderful time, when all of a sudden there appeared a giant herd of monsters in retrospect of a risk to bring monsters to the party. Oh well, no one left to judge because everyone here has been eaten by the monsters. What the hell kind of show starts like that? Well, Risk for one. The show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison and today we do have a giant herd of monsters on the show telling tales of their obsessions. Things that drove them nearly mad. That was Dan Rosen up top, and this is Aeroplane Pageant behind me right now. We're going to start with an old friend of mine, a fellow member of the state. Michael Showalter has also been on Stella, and Michael and Michael have issues. At the Risk Live show, he shared some anecdotes defining the word obsession. We call
3: this Unlike Louise. Obsession. So I, I being the good student that I am, I went immediately went to uh, find a definition for this so that I could do my research. And the definition is, an obsession is an unwelcome, uncontrollable, and persistent idea, thought, image, or emotion that a person cannot help thinking uh, about, even though it creates significant distress or anxiety. And I thought about this because I was thinking that when, when I first uh, heard the, the category or the, the topic, I was thinking of, you know, typically when I say that I'm obsessed with something, it would be like, you know, um, a new coat. Like, I'm obsessed with this coat. <laughs> or, or a song. Or, a, you know, like, I'm obsessed. I remember when I, was, uh, in, uh, when I first discovered Van Morrison's album, Moon Dance. I said, I'm obsessed with this Van Morrison album, Moon Dance. But then hearing this... <laughs> Definition. I wasn't obsessed with it. I loved it. <laughs> and they're very different. I mean, we have the word uh, healthy obsession. Um, but, but there's really no such thing because I think the key word here uh, in the definition is anxiety because that's really what I, I mostly attribute obsession to is anxiety, which is the persistent thought that I can't make go away no matter how badly I try And in fact, the harder I try to make the thought go away, the more I have it, which is the phenomenon of if I resist the thought, the thought persists, resist, persist, and they they rhyme, and it's a good thing. So (laughs) I, uh, but I I have some notes and I, I, well, I was thinking because this is a good topic for me personally, because, and of course, obsession, whenever I, I think I suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder. So the word that's left out of obsession is compulsion because I have the thought and then I am compelled to act on it. Um, But then I was thinking about, I I have this vivid memory of a story I saw about a guy who could not leave his house until he tied his shoes perfectly. But of course, there's no such thing as him perfectly tying his shoes. So he would just tie his shoes over and over again, trying to get the knot perfect. And I guess that's real, really obsessive thinking. But I'm obsessed with, uh, well, I'm also obsessed with coffee and I've had quite a bit of it today. So I'm like shaking, uh, like I might explode, but that would, that'd be great for you guys, but not good for the podcast. <laughs> it would be good for the podcast because they would see it, but um, like, I guess I'm, when I, so I'm using obsession as something that I like that I don't want to like. Or something that I think about that I don't want to think about. And I watch a lot of television. One of the things that I'm obsessed with right now, do people, have people seen the Sam Adams commercials? I'm obsessed, if you have, you'll know about what I'm talking about. I'm obsessed with the brewer with the long beard. (laughs) And again, I say, I don't want to think about it, but I do. He scares me. I am so afraid of this brewer in the Sam Adams commercials with the long beard. And it's this phenomenon now. It's like this look. It's like these guys with like, Short hair and like terrifying long beards. And then I think about the Donner Party. It takes me to the Donner Party and cannibalism. It's like this weird, there's something vaguely sort of, it's Spartan, I guess. Or I don't know. And I'm also obsessed with, I'm also obsessed with the TV show The Bachelor which my girlfriend insists that we watch. And I go, I won't watch this. I refuse to watch this. And like two seconds in, I'm like, I can't believe he likes her. And I, I'm like, what am I doing? Because here, but here, the obsession is, I'm a, I'm, I am compelled to understand what makes these people act and think the way they do. Because they all say that they're in love with him. But they don't know him. If you hear the testimonials, they'll all be like, I'm falling in love with Jake. By the way, every bachelor's name is Jake. Every season. They're like, I'm falling in love with Jake. I'm like, you don't fucking know Jake! You've been on one date with Jake. One one one-on-one with Jake. You don't know Jake yet. Wait until the heat of the cameras is off you. Then you can say you're in love with Jake. And so I'm obsessed with trying to understand what makes them think this way. And then I'm thinking, I think I'm obsessed too with, with obsession in general because they're obsessed. And I love this show. Well, I think, as a, I'm noticing this because I also love this show Hoarders which is about people who can't throw shit away. <laughs> and I understand them. I totally get it. They, they're... Who they? Because they're very placid. These aren't psychos. If you meet them, you would never know that their house is a garbage dump. You wouldn't know it. They're clean, they're nice, they're articulate, and they're fucking crazy. And I get it, and I get it. I get it, because I'm just like them. And I think too about the, the, the Ralph Lauren, the, isn't there the obsession, the perfume obsession. It's very sexual and then, but it's not, it's scary. Stalkers are obsessed. And I was thinking, I could talk about sex. I mean, come on, of course. And I was like, do I really want to talk about sex? Do I really want to talk about sex? And I don't. <laughs> but I'm compelled to. <laughs> That's the problem. I don't want to talk about it, but I'm compelled to. I had, I, I, I remember now why didn't I do this a long time ago? I remember around the time uh, of of uh, 9-11, in the aftermath, as those of you that were here will recall, there was this anthrax thing. And every day you'd hear about some new thing that happened and there was a scare, a second whole wave of of terror around, around anthrax. So I'm in the Union Square area walking and I heard a huge explosion. And then I saw white powder billowing out of a building. I immediately heard sirens, thou- you know, tons and tons of sirens. I saw people streaming towards me in the opposite direction, running, screaming. And I was compelled to walk towards the, this, this white powder. And the thought that I was having as I was walking towards it, very much thinking I could be dying right now because there could, this could be anthrax, I could be inhaling anthrax. The thought that I was having was, when my mom and dad go through my shit, they're gonna find my porn. And I don't want them to see it. So when I got home, I threw out my pornography because I didn't want them to think that I had sexual thought, thoughts or something, I didn't even know. was like I had to protect my honor (laughs) but as it turns out it was it was a it was a scaffolding thing that fell (laughs) I know I'm running out of so much more I wanted to say (laughs) when I okay Okay, I'll say this very quickly. So, I want to understand why. I think that's my obsession. And the question that I have is: are, because are, I, I, I'm like a car, like my car, if I'm a car, <laughs> I'm calibrated to go off the road. Like, if, if I let go of the steering wheel, it's going to go off the road. So if you give me something that I can get fucked up on, I will, involuntarily. My thoughts are my own worst enemy, absolutely without doubt. I sometimes feel like I wish I could chop my own head off. Because I'm so tormented by the non-stop dialogue that's going on inside my head. My cat And I guess if I were to make any, if I were to come to any sort of conclusion about this, it's that I wish I were a cat. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. My cat Louise, she's small, dainty, frequently gets stuck in the coat closet. Every time we open the coat closet, Louise goes inside every time and I would say one out of every five times that Louise goes inside the coat closet we don't see it and we close the coat closet and hours go by and one of us will go where's Louise have you seen Louise lately check the coat closet we open the coat closet And Louise comes out of the coat closet. She could have been in there for five hours, six hours, like this. She's fine. She could give a shit. She's fine. She leaves the coat closet and and re-enters happiness immediately. And I envy that. I envy that. Because if I was stuck in that coat closet, I would lose my mind. That's all. Thank you very much. Adam and Eve
2: were in the garden, laughing and feeling free. Then Adam stepped away for a few, and he left Eve under a tree. Then a snake came down and wound around and tempted Eve with fruit. And she was weak and tasted its sweet juice. Adam came back and found that Eve had covered her womanly parts. Though this was fine in general, Adam felt a change in his heart. Eve had played the fool as women do, her purity forsaken. She took a risk that Adam wouldn't have taken. Because Adam was naturally smarter than Eve. Oh, religious sexism. Do you ever stop? That was God's pottery. Now we have the lovely and talented Julia Rotzi, who co-hosts one of our favorite shows, Stripped Stories, at the UCB Theater. Julia's obsession is called The Grind.
1: When I was about 8, 910 I'm not sure, it's pretty fuzzy, uh, I became obsessed with humping things. Uh, <laughs> anything I could get my Esprit sweatpants on, I would hump um, pillows, side of the bed uh all of my stuffed animals have been humped by me um (laughs) when i go home now and i see my stuffed animals still in my childhood bedroom i feel like all their eyes are glaring at me being like you slut you know every single one um and i didn't really know what i was doing when i was humping things uh i just knew that it Uh, Felt really good uh, and I kind of had assumed that I had invented it because nobody had told me about it And then I started to think oh my god. I invented it when I grow up. I'm gonna write books about it I'm gonna teach classes about it. I'm gonna have seminars all about it, Uh, but then uh, The fact that it involved my thingy uh, I knew that it was probably a bad thing to do so I only did it at night when no one was around That was until my mom purchased what, to this day, I will say, is the best sex toy in the world, um, a beanbag chair. Uh, (laughs) She bought this white, gorgeous, gorgeous beanbag chair, and uh, it was in the living room. And the way I discovered that it was a great uh, sexual partner was that one day I had stayed home from school, and I was watching different strokes. Uh, not, not a sexy show, but uh, I made it sexy. I, and I was sitting, I was sitting on the beanbag chair, kind of like this, like squatting on it, like a frog. And I was sitting on it, and it was the episode of Different Strokes where uh, Arnold and Dudley got stuck in a haunted house. I don't know if anyone remembers this episode. But it was, it was a scary episode, a very special episode. And I, I got scared, because they were scared, and I kind of started tussling on the beanbag chair in fright. But then my tussling sort of turned into ecstasy tussling. And, and before I knew it, I was, like, full-on, like, fucking a chair. And... <laughs> I don't remember if Dudley and Arnold Ever got out of that haunted house But I do remember something very special Happened that day Um, I want to say I fell in love uh, Because every time I would go back to the chair It sort of like stroke its pretend face Or whatever and just do it Um, But the problem was the chair Was located in a very public part of the house The living room And I had already decided that it was reserved for special private time, but I didn't care, because this chair was so good to me that I would just find ways to like sneak in a hump even if someone could walk by. Maybe the risk part of it sort of turned me on as well at age 10. Uh, like, I even knew what that meant. but And I didn't even it didn't take a lot for me to want to do this thing, because um, I would hump it while watching anything. Like, I remember one time I humped it while watching She-Devil, which... The only, like, kind of naughty scene in it, I think, is between Ed Begley Jr. and Roseanne Barr, so I don't really know what that was all about. I I remember one time I was humping the chair um, while watching that show, Out of This World, and my dad walked by, and I remember like I was like mid-grind you know, grind or whatever, and I really wish I could have done that finger-pointing thing that Evie would do to her boyfriend, and just like pause time and get off the chair so my dad wouldn't notice. Um, and I don't, still don't know if my dad ever noticed what I was doing, because then we had dinner after I watched Out of This World and got off, and my dad didn't say anything to me, but my dad doesn't really talk to me, so it was just like a regular dinner anyways. So... <laughs> And I would, like, like this chair, I would think about it all day long. Like I, would be in cl- like, I would be in class, and one of my friends would be like, do you want to come over after school and play? I'd be like, no, I'm really busy. Humping furniture. Like, I didn't care. I just wanted, couldn't wait to get home. My mom was thrilled that I wanted to be home all day, and I was like, you don't even know. So I then met this girl, and she basically ruined my, my love affair. Uh, she, her name was Jill, and, uh, and her mom had given her a book about sex. And uh, this book taught her all about sex. And she, in turn, taught me all about sex. And what she taught me uh, was about masturbating. And when she got to that chapter, she said, uh, Julia, do you know what masturbating is? I was like, yeah, totally. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no idea. She goes, well, it's when you touch your thing or you rub your thing against something and it feels good. You didn't do that, do you? And I was like, oh, my God. Crazy? No. Why? She's like, oh, well, because it's really gross and you can get pregnant. <laughs> Clearly, Jill did not read the whole chapter. Um, I later found out, pre Google research, looked in the encyclopedia. You can't get pregnant from from doing it, but it was so gross, and I confirmed this fact by asking all my little girlfriends. I was like, you don't like touch your... And then they're like, ew, that's so gross. And I was like, yeah, totally. (laughs) Like dying inside. So upset. So I decided I had to quit. I had to quit this romance because the last thing a little girl wants to be is so gross. But I didn't know how to quit. I was like compulsed to just like... It was there in the living room just like asking for it. You know, like I just wanted... And I would like pray to God. Like I literally would be like, please God, help me stop this... Thing, this thing I need so badly. And I thought it was going to stop when the chair broke. Um, the chair popped. I was the only one who sat on it. I was like, what, 80 pounds? Like the seams popped and I thought my mom was going to throw it away, but she's frugal. So instead of throwing it away, she put it in a trash bag she was like, oh, you can still sit on it. Like, like, as if it was still... So I would. So now I'm humping garbage, you guys. Like, I didn't care. Like, the plastic was all ripped. Like, it was just... But I eventually i did I did kind of lose interest uh, the more I, I got interested in boys, I got less interested in inanimate objects and I was uh interested in one boy in particular this guy Rick um, and Rick was he was a football player uh, he was very popular uh, I gave him my first hand job during the movie Mighty Ducks Two um, he was a great guy and he was um he was black, and I only mention this because I grew up in like a very white suburb, and he grew up in a more urban part of the city and whenever he would call like my mom would be like Julia Rick's on the phone I would like run to my cd uh my cd player and like take out my poison and warrant cds and throw in like swv and jodeci and silk and like have the phone kind of like pass the cd player to be like hey just listen to some urban jams you know like so I could have like hot street cred at like age 15 or whatever So I'd do this, and I would have this like like R and B music playing in the back. One night we were on the phone, and he was like, "I was just talking," and he was like, "Oh, so so what, what what's what's going on?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, just had some pizza, whatever." And he's like, "Uh huh," and I was like, "What what are you?" He's like, "Just keep talking," and I was like, "Uh, okay, I bought new Z Cavarichi pants at the mall," and he was like, uh-huh. <gasps> and I was like, "What are you doing?" He was like, "Oh, okay, thank you," and I was like, "What?" What just happened? He's like, oh, I just jerked off while you were talking. And I was like,
2: what? Why didn't you even say anything
1: sexy? And he was like, it's just your voice. What, you don't, you don't touch yourself? And I was like, ew, no, that's so gross. Like, why would you accuse me of such a thing? He's like, well, you really should. I'm like, I, c- I absolutely couldn't. That's crazy. And he's like, do it. <laughs> I don't know if it was just this, like, sexy urban voice and, like... <laughs> Like the sounds of like Silk's freak Bird there. Oh yeah, like playing in the background. But I was like, all right, all right, I'm gonna do this, and I did. And since then, I have proudly admitted to doing quote unquote it. Uh, however, I haven't done it with a beanbag chair ever since. And I just say it was really funny because uh, my mom, my mom, eventually threw away the pile of garbage probably about ten, thirteen years ago. I'm not sure. And um, But not too long ago I don't even know they sold beanbag chairs anymore But uh, she replaced it With a brand new Ironically black beanbag chair <laughs> That is sitting in our living room uh, Total virgin, untouched And I gotta say <laughs> I, I, I was just home two weeks ago I'm not even kidding I like walked by it And I was like, hey, what's up? And the chair was like, hey And like My stomach dropped, like, I couldn't believe it was there, just like, you know, and to this day, I haven't been with a a better lover, I will say that. Thank you.
2: This is Risk, True Tales Boldly Told. And aeroplanepageant.com is the home of the music you're hearing now. They're awesome. Now, sometimes to kick off the live show, I tell a short story. This one's called A Thing of Beauty. I'm going to spare you <laughs> any big, long stories of my own about obsessions. Uh, the one that is kind of, if you know me, uh, difficult to get around Like the one that's obvious, if, if you know me Is that uh, my entire life I've been obsessed with guys' butts <laughs> uh, it, This began with my, my, it, my first moments of consciousness are of a guy's butt Uh, I was just about three years old, and I was just kind of singing to myself, lolling about on a shag carpet at home. And I remember looking up, and up on a mantel top there, there was something I had never seen in the house before, and I was transfixed by it. It was this little Hummel statue, and it was of a little toddler, a a lot like me. He was in a onesie, and he, too, was crawling around, but... On the back of his PJs, there was a little trap door, you know, and one of the buttons had popped, and the trap door was flapping open, and in short, you could see his hiney. (laughs) Well, I, I grabbed a stool, a footstool, I put it there, and I started climbing up, and I got my little mitts around that thing, and I just thought... This is the most hilarious and exciting and important thing I had ever seen. So I started running around the house yelling to I had five brothers and sisters. I was like, look everyone! You can see us high me. I ran upstairs, went to everyone's room and showed them, and all my brothers and sisters were laughing. They loved it. I was like, oh my gosh, I should let the Sullivans know too, next door. So I start racing downstairs I'm like it's Heidi you can see it! it's Heidi and all of a sudden I was floating in midair I was bewildered then I realized someone had by- had me by the collar <laughs> my mother spun me around and she set me down and she had this look in her eyes that was just such an icy stare it was clear immediately that something about my feelings about this Heine were terrible and something she had to kill before it went any further. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll try to explain. I said, well, but look, it's funny, Mom. You can see his Heine. She said, uh huh. I'm just going to put it somewhere where it will be safe. And I never saw it again. <laughs> But you know what? There are days when I'm laying in bed and I'm reading and my husband is, you know, coming in from a shower and he's toweling off in the bedroom and I look up and I still think, wow, this is something else. You can see his hiney.
0: I want to kiss the mouth. On your ugly face, I love you
3: more than my ex boyfriend needs his space. Will the moon take a risk and come outside on a night?
2: Cooper channeling the magnetic fields. Our last story comes from the remarkable Mike Daisy. Uh, You should look for Mike's new program on WNYC called The Great and Secret Show. And listen now as he tells the tale we call Shapes Inside Ourselves.
4: Branding is such a complicated thing. It must have seemed like such a good idea. You know, at first, when they said, we'll call it the 92nd Street Y. (laughs) There's no chance that we'll ever expand beyond this location. (laughs) What better name? Because when you hear the name, you'll know just where the fuck you're supposed to go. (laughs) It's going to
2: scale well.
4: Way into the future. But of course it doesn't, right? And now here we are at the 92nd Y in Tribeca. Far to the south, you know. Sitting down here in this place. Listening to stories this evening. And it's been... uh, An evening of obsessions. And it's a fascinating thing to talk about obsessions in New York City because simultaneously we're all drawn to the city, I think, because we have obsessions. It takes a certain kind of uh, drive and determination and uh, pure uh, uh, sort of intolerableness. Like you have to have a certain degree of uh, anger at yourself and the universe to continue to stay in this city. Like it requires a certain irrational desire to be hurt. You know, a little little sadomasochistic, passionate embrace. You need that, or you're not going to stay. You'll leave, you know. And I think we all know people who leave. They make that rational decision. They say, oh, well, you know, it's a good job in Fairfield. And then they elect out, right? They eject and they begin breeding. Often they breed as they leave. As they leave. Sometimes they're just shitting babies out of them. As they run upstate, one fetus after another, is just dropping out of their fucking bodies as they run for the fucking hills. Because how could they raise a child here? In this swamp. This fetid shithole where they wasted their twenties. It's true. It's true. People eject and leave and they, and they run off. And the, the thing that drew them here these, those obsessions then twist and change and new obsessions take hold and the desire for comfort, the desire for something easier takes hold and pulls them away from this place. I tour a lot so I'm not in New York and I miss it so desperately until I get back and it's, you know, it's a beautiful kind of torment. I miss it so much, and then I'm back, and it's like I'm on the crook of the spike. It just drives right in. The first taxi ride, I remember. That's right. It's fucked here. It's fucked here just as it was fucked elsewhere. In a way, it's uh, sort of an illuminating... Uh, it Really, this is the human condition, is that you are... It's, uh, it's relativism at work. Thank you, Einstein. We are fucked everywhere. In fact... Uh, You feel like it's going to be better somewhere else because you're watching it from at a distance. But then once you're actually there, you realize you are fucked there as well. The difference in New York is that things are all moving so quickly and we are all so packed so tightly together that perhaps we can pretend that we are not as fucked as we are or at least we'll be able to look across at other people like the kind that have come out on a night like this to sit in a room with the 92nd Y Tribeca. You can look at one another and say, we are the kind of people who came out to see something. And if you are listening on the podcast, I suppose, you're cool enough to download it and say, oh yeah, I made it all the way to the end of the episode. I'm so cool. This jog is going so well.
0: These stories
4: have been wonderful. I've really learned a lot about myself. And... The fascinating thing about being a New Yorker is that that, that delicate tension that you're driven by your obsessions and the obsessions dragged you to this fucking place and buried you in this fucking desert. A desert filled with so many people and then it is only through your obsessions that you'll be free but you start to lose them as soon as you get here because it's so hard to retain a sense of your own obsessions, your own identity when the noise is so loud. You get into a room like this when you're surrounded by so many cool people. And very often, I don't know if you know this, but most people's coolness is not actually as individual as you would like it to be. People like to pretend that when they're in kindergarten, you know, that, that the, each person is a special snowflake and a special flower. And that as you grow, you'll be completely different. But if you actually look at a garden, for instance... They're not all special flowers. In fact, many of them are the same fucking kind of flower, one after another, and they grow, and some grow all fucked up, and some grow properly, and they're not actually all different. Different circumstances, but not different flowers. And so it is with us. And we come to the big, big city, and we're surrounded by so much, and we begin to look at one another. And over time, our obsessions begin to dissipate. We pull back on them because it is so painful to actually... Want It is so painful to commit. Because that's what it takes to make an obsession work, is to commit. The full-bodied commitment of being willing to throw yourself off the top of the building. The full-bodied commitment to give yourself totally over to a thing. And many people here know that commitment or have felt it one time or another. In many cases, it's what drove them to this place. But then once you get here... It can be so difficult to keep track of, so difficult to keep the noise, the music of it in your ears because it goes out over and over again and you settle as we all do for one thing or another, you settle for the right or almost right job, the right or almost right person, the right or almost right lunch. Because you're never going to get the right lunch place. This is one of the hells of New York. You'll wander and wander in a three-block radius. You'll wander and wander, and you'll know at the end of your fucking journey you should have gone to the second Indian place near the beginning. The smell of the curry, so, so bright in your nose, that was the thing, man. But you said, no, it can't come this early. I always walk three blocks in a circle. It can't be this one at the beginning. That would be too easy. I need to be on that, I need to suffer for it. I need to walk my whole lunch break out just thinking about what I could fucking eat. And when you finally found something maybe you could eat, there was a line. Because you're in New York and there's all these other tortured motherfuckers with you and they're waiting in lines too. They're all like, we all need lunch. We all need lunch and we're looking for enlightenment we think might be here with the curry. So we're waiting in a fucking line. I'm hoping the curry's really good, and maybe over the curry I'll have an idea about the memoir I'm supposed to fucking write. I'll, I'll have it over this fucking curry, and I'll leave and go back to my shitty job, and then I'll realize what I'm supposed to be doing. You're a desperate bunch of people hoping for transcendence, praying for it, like people are everywhere. It's just that the density is higher. So many people packed in next to each other. It can sicken you. You can start to become too taken up with it. You can't, you can't actually hear yourself anymore. You can say to yourself, I need to settle. I need to shit out a baby. I need to shit out a baby right now, and I will be too busy to figure out what the fuck my life means, and I will go to Fairfield, which I will admit I have never been to, but I assume it is the first plane of hell. And I think I'm right. So for me, obsession is a very particular topic because I think it is actually through the portal of obsession, through that gate that we find ourselves. Like that actually through the gate we save ourselves. I think if we lose track of our obsessions, that's when everything starts to come apart at the edges. That's when everything begins to disintegrate. And it's through obsession that is the only way that anything good has happened in my life. I mean, I'm not a fucking crazy person though, so I don't know if it's going to work for you. (laughs) But I know for me that the times when I've been most in touch with myself, the times when I've realized the simple algebra The simple algebra that you have one life and that you're alive in your one life and what's the worst thing that can happen? My father's a therapist. He works with Vietnam veterans. It's a fascinating kind of therapist to have because that kind of therapist, you know, instead of sitting around being like, well... Tell me about your father. Well, my father is not going to have me tell him about his father. But, you know, uh, you know the, the, that kind of therapist is much more concerned with things that are uh, you know, sort of darker and deeper. And my father uh, went to Vietnam, was an in-country Vietnam vet, and he had his uh, empathy sort of shaved away by his experiences during the war. It's the reason he ended up going into the business and, and working at the vet center's. But he made him an unusual type of person to have coming to you trying to um make you feel better. As a teenager, I would I remember we would drive together. Uh often I'd have to go pick him up at work. He'd have a late session. I'd have to pick him from the car, the one car, and then we'd drive back to the house. I mean be driving back in Maine, which is, you know, kind of like driving back in a white emptiness, um a white empty blankness. It's black and dark in a way that does not exist, of course, in this city, but many of you are not from this city. Many of you know the darkness I'm talking about because you fled from it so you could be here. <laughs> so we're driving through that black emptiness and I'm sitting in the car and I'm fucked up. I'm really, really fucked up. And I and I tell my, I say to my father very sincerely, I say to him, dad, what do you, what do you do when you can't, what do you do when you can't, you can't do anything more? Like you can't even imagine um going on. Because I'd been suicidal. I've been I've been really, really fucked up. My father didn't know this, but you know how it is between fathers and sons. You wish, you hope that your father does know this because you think, My father and I are connected. I am like his puppet, his plaything. I am growing into the image of who he is, though I will never be the man he is. And he will know the shape of me. He knows where I've been shaped and built, how the limbs fit together. He will know me. And if I tell him that I am hurting, he will remember from when he was hurting. And he will be able to communicate with me in a way that no one else actually will. And so I I, I told him this, and I, I really... I really tried to reach across the gulf that existed between the two front seats there. And I said, what do, you, what do you do when you can't go on? And My father said, well, I go on. Because that's what war does to you, you know, shaves away those things. There wasn't any space left. He didn't have any coping techniques for me. And Stella was left was sort of like a, a very isolated, a very dissolved- away Beckett play, like the last lines of a Beckett play just hovering in the space between us. But he was right, because that is actually what you do, is you just keep going forward, you know, even when all hope is lost. It's not the whole truth, of course, there are some who do not keep going forward. They stop. you know, they fully stop. They stop and they die. And some of us out there in the darkness probably know people who made that choice. We don't think of it as a choice, do we? Because, of course. Choices are about the living, and choices are about those who are breathing and walking. And it's so easy when there's so much movement around. Once death takes us in any context, the old, the historical, the nameless, they become part of history. They're embedded in the firmament of the sky. We no longer see them. They are gone. And once they are gone, we forget them very, very quickly. Not because we are callous, but just because we are alive. We roll forward. We still need to shit and eat and fuck and move and it is impossible to hold sacred all these things we we have to move or it's unbearable so we make ourselves forget but the truth is not everyone makes that choice the truth is there are people who choose not to move forward there are people who choose to stop i was um i was in maine my life was disintegrating it was disintegrating in pieces i uh I had gotten a girlfriend uh, whom I had been with for many years. That we'd gone to high school, we, we, we'd been high school sweethearts, in a really dysfunctional relationship. And then we had gone off to college, separate colleges. We'd had a long distance relationship, which. Uh, you know, it's a terrible idea from the get-go because, you know, really, long-distance relationships shouldn't exist. It's really the miracle of technology lets it exist. Like, we shouldn't have telephones and we shouldn't have cars. These things have been invented recently compared to where our biology is. So long-distance relationship is very absurd. You know, out of sight, out of mind. Like, they literally should be, but they're not. Here they are. And so, you know, throughout college, we were always coming together and going apart and coming together and going apart uh, and, and, and cheating on one another. And it was really, you know, it's just a bad scene. It really should have ended years and years before, but it was one of those tortured relationships where you don't realize that you hate one another. Yeah. <laughs> because when you see one another, you fuck <laughs> immediately. Because, you know, we're talking with people who are 19, 20 years old, you know, and many of you here have forgotten already, quickly, and we all do, burned it out of you, but there was a time when life flares up inside of you so brightly that if you were made of wax, you would melt from the inside out. You don't know what the fuck is happening, you know? And we would have sex like rabid fucking weasels. Like those civets he was talking about earlier. It was, it was fierce and un, unmanageable, you know? Uh, I know you don't want to think about it looking at me here, but I'm telling you, human beings have sex, lots of them. The girl earlier humped a, a, a beanbag. I'm telling you, people have sex, and so we did. And it was very easy by having that sex to not think about uh, the consequences uh, of that sex, both the emotional consequences, namely that we actually hated one another, and that if we spent enough time together talking to one another, it would gradually surface. We'd realize, oh I hate you. The way it does in marriages. You know, over time you just realize one day you're buttering a toast you're putting some marmalade on, you're like, oh I hate you. And in a way, after I've had this moment, this realization, I've always hated you. And it sort of reverse engineers and now uh, everything is transformed into a landscape of hatred. And then it becomes easier, though not easy, easier to separate. We didn't have that because we just had sex way, way, way too much. And then the second consequence that we didn't reckon with, of course, is that all that sex actually caused uh, a baby, one of those babies, the ones that drop out of the people as they run for the hill. But the baby, the baby, the pregnancy, unfortunately, my girlfriend, we're both in a long distance relationship and she was an ardent Baptist, which was part of the problem for our deep schism and the reason why if we examined things more closely, we would never be fucking together. She was an ardent Baptist and so unfortunately, she was also very, very good at repression. You know, and so she distanced herself from what was going on in her body and her mind. And I did too, I'm sure, you know. I was very, very busy. I was in college, things were going really well. I was in a lot of plays. And I kept asking her to come and visit and she wouldn't visit and she wouldn't visit. And I was like, I can come visit you. It's like, No, 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 don't visit me because I'm pregnant and I found out the way the most of the world found out, in a sense you could say the way that she found out. I found out when her friends staged an intervention. And they took her to the hospital, uh, and she called me to tell me that she was eight months pregnant and that I would be a father in a month. And so I was very young, and we didn't know what to do, and I had, I thought my whole life in front of me, and I... I didn't want this. I had resolved to get the fuck away from Maine. I was doing everything I could at that point to get to a place like the one I'm in now to stand at the 92nd Street Y. Well, maybe the 92nd Street Y Tribeca on a small stage below a large stage. But you know, stages, people. It all goes in stages. But in my mind, that was the dream. The dream of a life lived in the mind. The dream of a life That didn't involve living in Maine. And I had worked so hard to get away from it all. Now it was crumbling. And so we worked together. We decided to give our child up for adoption. And that was a decision we came to together. It was a fierce one. We spent the winter together. And that winter was a terrible thing. That one month waiting for this child to be born like a package being delivered that no one wants. And then when it is delivered, you're going to refuse to sign for it. And the adoption people would come by and give us dossiers, and they piled up around this apartment. The first time we'd ever even lived with one another, you know? So we're pretending to be adults here in this room, pretending that we're together, pretending that it matters. And um, the time came, and she gave birth to our daughter, and she couldn't give her up. And looking back now, it's so clear to me that this makes total sense. That wisdom that we get in hindsight, it could never have been otherwise. Even though in the moment, it seemed like we sacrificed everything. We stayed up night after night to tell what we should do for our future, what we should do together. It seemed so logical and clear. But then there was this third voice. There was this child and it was not possible. It was not possible. And she kept the baby. And I collapsed. I collapsed in pieces, one piece after another. I was angry. I couldn't forgive the fact that we had worked, decided on this together. I couldn't forgive the fact that I had plans that were being upended. My arrogance and my pride was so great. My belief That my obsessions could change the world. My belief that if I came to a city like this, full of lights, that I could make a difference, that I could change everything. I was megalomaniacal. I was a fool. I was a fool. And the relationship disintegrated, and I disintegrated, and I found myself on a road with my father talking to him about what you do when you are out of options. My father knows everything that's happening, of course, and he has no wisdom to give me because in his own battles, his empathy was shaved away a long time before. And I tried to kill myself. Twice. One major one minor but it didn't take it didn't take because life is so pernicious the deepest obsession to be alive the belief that tomorrow really is another day that however dark and sinful and ruined the things are that float beneath the surface that you will be able to walk out of that thing through a doorway as though into another place that you could walk through a door and the people will not know you they will not know your true face that you will put that face aside and put on another face and that you will be able to speak of these things and survive is extraordinary and it's true and it's not a lie it's a miracle It's a miracle that we are allowed to speak this way, that we can pass through these things in one lifetime and come out the other side like another person with all those obsessions burned away and new ones left in their place, the knowledge that we will live, the knowledge that this matters, that this matters in the deepest way, that the choices we make now will count. The things we build will matter. And the sacrifices we have made to get to this place, whether they were good or ill, were made. And we will reckon with them and we will be judged by them. But they are ours. They are our stories and they make the shapes inside ourselves that guide us to our ends. Thank you.
2: Created and hosted by me, Kevin Allison. Our producer is Michelle Walson. Our sound engineer is Nick Montalbano. Our episode editor is Mike Cades. Our story editors are Jeff Mersel and Andy Kroner. Our associate producers are Timothy Meehan, Emily Altman, and Madison Perry. And remember what the Turks say about Risk? It's not a pleasure festival. So why did my brother in law kiss me?
0: Remember what the Turks say? <laughs> the- ah!